let me say uh, hello and welcome. Um, and just so glad that we all get to be here together. I'm going to invite you to open up to the book of James, chapter 3. Um, I think there's b Bibles in the pews around you. If not, there's one somewhere, somewhat nearby or whatever. Um, and I want to invite you to go to James chapter 3. We've been as a church in James uh, for the last uh, month, month and a half or whatever it's been. Um, I'm just getting into it with you all, having been gone for three months and, and getting back to things. Are you a wise person? <laughs> would the people in your life, you know, your spouse, your kids, your friends, your coworkers, would they describe you as wise? Where does wisdom come from? How can we become wise if we're not wise? What kind of wisdom is there? Are there different types? Last week, we began talking about, and kind of an extension, but I think began in a lot of ways talking about what it means to be a mature believer, a, a mature believer in Christ, someone who is mature in Christ. One of the things we saw is that we should all be endeavoring to, to do that. We should all be endeavoring to be mature or maturing in our faith and in our understanding of the Lord. This is something we should seek. And today is kind of an extension of that as we talk about the fact that those who are mature in Christ are going to be wise in Christ. They are going to be spiritually mature. And so let me just ask the question again. Are you wise? If you are a mature believer or a maturing believer, I'll extend some extra grace to a few of us who just really struggle all the time. Are you growing in wisdom? Are you growing? James chapter 3 verses 13 through 18 is, as you might guess, about wisdom. And that's where we're going to be today. Let me read this for us. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But here, this church, verse 17, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So as I ask us about wisdom, let me ask us another question. Are you a person of peace? Are you a person who is peaceful, peace-filled, who is aimed at 
peace. Jesus said, what blessed are those who are peacemakers? Are we peacemakers? And what does peace have to do with wisdom? (laughs) We're going to see, I think, that it has everything to do with wisdom. That wisdom comes from a place of peace and it results in a place of peace. And in fact, if you are not a person of peace, then you are not wise. At least wise to the ways of the Lord, wise in wisdom from above. For what we see here, I think, very clearly, is that when we are wise to the world, or wise in the ways of the world, then we are actually at war. And what we may find, and this might be you, this might describe who you are, you are at war right now. War with yourself and who you are and who you're trying to be. War with God for who he's calling you to be and yet you may be resistant to that. If that's so, you're not alone. I tell you, I had a, a, a week of prayer during my sabbatical where I found myself saying to the Lord, Lord, I don't want what you want. I don't desire that. So what are you going to do in my heart <laughs> about it, Right? Because there are times when God calls us to stuff and to be something we don't want to be. We may be at war with God. We may also find ourselves at war with each other or with those around us, with family members, with co-workers. For some of us, man, we are people who would never describe ourselves as people of peace because there is just conflict all around. Things are never quite right, not only in our world but in our souls. We're going to see today that's the characteristic of the wisdom of this world. But that peace, being right with God, right with ourselves, right with those around us, right with justice, right with with who we are supposed to be, is a sign of the wisdom that comes from above and that changes us. James gives us a really practical picture. His whole book is a practical picture of what it looks like to be a mature mature believer, a believer who is growing in their faith. And today we're talking about wisdom and what that looks like. What is wisdom? What should wisdom not be? And then we're going to land in the wisdom that should be. So let us start off right now with a look at wisdom. Let's just look at verse 13. James writes, Who is wise and understanding among you? Now, you should read those in a certain kind of a tone. And the funny thing, the ironic thing, is that it's the kind of tone that we spoke about last week is not being allowed. (laughs) Right? It's sort of the sarcastic tone. It's that biting tone. James says, look, who is wise and understanding among you? His inference is that there are none who are wise and understanding among them. Last week we talked about sarcasm. We talked about how we use our tongue. We talked about being careless with our words. And if that's something you struggle with, go back and read last week's passage. But just want to draw attention to the fact that James is using his language really carefully here. Right? Because he's talking to a group of people who think they are both wise and full of understanding, and yet they are foolish. And he's making that very clear to them in his tone, 
in his attitude, in the way he's speaking to them. Who is wise and understanding among you? He says, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. What he's saying is that, look, you say you're wise and understanding, but you are neither weak or meek, nor are you wise, and it is shown in your conduct. What comes in your life is flowing out of what you think, out of the wisdom that you have. The neat thing is James also isn't just being biting here. He's also being really, really beautiful. These two words together are reminiscent of what you see in the Old Testament over and over and over again for the people who are believers, who are mature and maturing in their faith and who are actually called to leadership and to lead the congregation of God's people. You see it over and over again in the book of Deuteronomy. Here's one example. Deuteronomy 1.13 as Moses is being called to delegate his immense responsibilities, right? Moses was one man leading a million. You say, well, how could you do that? Well, of course he couldn't do it. He needed help. And so God tells him exactly what to do. In Deuteronomy 1.13, it says, Choose for your tribes, wise, understanding, and experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads. Choose those who are understanding, Right? Those who are wise and what? Experienced. Mature. Those who, who are doing this, who are living the kind of life that should be for those who would lead God's people. And so while James is using some biting words to say, hey look, none of you are this, he's saying, but there is a picture of what this should be. You should be like these people. You should be different. See, James knows as he says these words, as he writes these words, and, and as he says that it's about our conduct, right? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. See, James knows that, that, that actions flow out of wisdom. Hear this really well, church. What you think to be wise is how you will act. Which means if your actions are undesirable, it's because your wisdom is broken. If your actions are to be desired, are mature as believers, it is because your wisdom is coming from above. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. Church, I say this all the time. For some of you, you may get sick of hearing it. But the reason I say it all the time is because every one of us needs this reminder, including myself. And until we all get this perfectly, I'm going to keep saying it over and over and over again. Here it is. Hear this well. If you're a believer, you are called to live differently in this world than everybody who is not. We are called to a different life. One that looks different and feels different. We are called to spend our money differently, our time, our energy. We are meant to share what we are and have with those around us who don't have. We are meant to spend our lives in worship of God and not other things. Every one of us should compare ourselves to our neighbors and ask, am I different than them? Do I do things differently than them? The answer for most of us is no. That's why I keep saying it 
over and over again. Now, I will say, I've also said we should never compare ourselves to our neighbors, right? Because when we do, we start thinking, oh man, I'm better than myself, than I really am. Right? But here's the question. Are we different? If we're not, it's because the wisdom that we're operating on is the same wisdom that they're operating on. If our lives are not different, it is because we think the same way. If we are different, then we think differently. James talks about this different wisdom from what we should be. He calls it earthly wisdom. In verse 13, right, we've been looking at verse 13. He says, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom, right? He's giving one picture, and then he says this in verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. I want to unpack this a little bit. In verses 14 and 16, he talks about, about bitter envy and selfish ambition in, in your hearts. This is, this is the, um, the, the, the symptom that leads to a diagnosis. If your heart is full of bitter envy and selfish ambition, then you're operating out of the wisdom of the world and not the wisdom of the kingdom of God, not the wisdom that comes down from above. Literally, when it talks about bitter envy, it is talking about bitter zeal. Bitter zeal. That's the, the language that's used in the Greek here. It is a desire for something other than what you have that leads you to the taking of it yourself. See, zealousness can be a really good thing when it's attached to the right things, but zealousness attached to the wrong things becomes really problematic. And what he says is, look, you people are, are zealous about your envy, about your, your bitterness that you don't have. He says that's what consumes you. There is a selfish ambition in their hearts and those who are not wise to the kingdom but wise of this world. Those of you who are part of Sunday school may remember from last week we talked about the heart. The heart is the seat of motivation. It is what drives us. Dane Ortland, the author of Gentle and Woolly, highlights this for us. He calls it the place of motivation. Now, if you take that with the idea of selfish ambition, it means that this is what is driving them, motivating and setting their life on fire. Church, we're all meant to have our lives set on fire. God made us to be a people who are set on fire. You're either going to be set on fire for the good things of the Lord, or you're going to be set on fire for the evil things of this earth. It is one or the other. And that fire drives us. We talked about fire last week as we looked at language and how we use language and that there is a fire in our hearts that pushes us and moves us either to love people well and serve them or to destroy them with our words. What drives you? What motivates you? Moving on. James writes that not only are they <laughs> desiring, right, are they full of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. It says, um, next, he says, do not boast and be false 
to the truth. This is the end of verse 14. Do not boast and be false to the truth. Church, again, boasting is comparative. Boasting is comparative. It means that you're taking your life, you're looking at those around you. Boasting always puts yourself above others. In leadership, this means that you think that you are the only one qualified, the only one able, and that nobody else will be able to do it. All right, when we boast, we are taking ourselves and saying, look at me and ignore everybody else. James says this isn't the way it should be. He attaches to that the idea of denying the truth. What happens when we deny the truth? We're hiding what's there. We're hiding the reality. If we're boasting, we're hiding the truth, then what we're doing is we're, we're taking everything that we are that doesn't qualify and we're hiding it and we're lifting up everything that does. It also means that we're going to take everything that qualifies someone else and hide it and we're going to take everything that, that doesn't we're going to highlight it. This could be at any level, any level, right? It could be the pastor in front. It could be the one who's teaching kids. It could be the one who's cleaning the bathroom in the church to get ready for the gathering of worship on Sunday morning. I've got to do this. I'm the one who does this. This is my job. But James says, do not boast. Do not boast. Do not lift yourself up. Church, I met someone this week who literally seems convinced that if not for them, God would not move in the valley. Church, I got news for you. When, when we moved here to replant this church, I was convinced God was doing a great thing down here and wanted to be a part of it. And that's what I've seen for five years. Through Calvary, here with us, but also through some of the other faithful churches in the valley. Doing cool things and great ministry and loving people. Church, do we lift ourselves up at the expense of others who are doing kingdom work? I got news for us. This is news for my own heart, by the way. If we fail or fall... He has other people to do the work. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need Calvary to do what he wants to do in this valley. And should we decide to be wise to the world and not wise to the kingdom, I'm pretty sure he'll make that clear to us. But rather, church, we get to be a part of what God is doing. This has been my joy all the way through. My joy that we get to be a people who get to serve the Lord and get to work for him, who get to share the gospel with people, who get to preach the good news and sing great songs to the Lord. We get to do that. Not because we are qualified, not because I am great, <laughs> but because he is. Because he is. Guys, this is incredibly freeing. 
I just want to share one story in this, uh, why this is so freeing. A few years ago, some of you guys know this, my wife and I were really struggling being here in Lahana. We had a lot of personal things going on. There was a lot of struggles here at the church. Uh, it was kind of a really rough season. Some of you don't know this, but we were like minutes away at one point of just leaving. We were. We were done. I was in, in pain, spiritual and emotional. She was struggling. It was, it was rough. Now, some of you guys really did a great job loving us through that. Thank you. But the other thing that happened is I was on the phone with Mark Halleck who sent us down here. He was the, the pastor at Calvary Englewood who sent us down here. And I was sharing that I was really struggling, that Betsy was, and we were having a really hard time. And he said, all right, man, do we need to get somebody else here? And suddenly it dawned on me. Calvary Lahana didn't need me. <laughs> See, I was bearing the entire weight of this entire thing. Unrightfully so, I should not have been. But I was convinced that if we left, what would happen? And Mark said, Matt, it's not your church. It's God's church. And a few other things happened out of that phone call, and here we are, like three years later. Love and life, love and ministry, love in the Lord, loving Lahana. It's freeing. It is freeing to know that it is not up to me. It is not up to you. It is not up to us. God is going to work in this valley whether we are willing to work with him or not. Let's work with him willingly, though. Let's give our lives to that work, to that ministry, right? Okay, but back to uh, earthly wisdom, right? Back to earthly wisdom. He says right after this that this kind of wisdom leads to a few things. He says it leads to disorder, and every evil practice. Now, here's a couple things to learn. Uh, the word for disorder here is actually the word, uh, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, I, I never quite know, um, akatasia. And what it actually means, you see it in James chapter 4 translated exactly like this, it means double-minded. So James says, look, this kind of wisdom, this kind of boasting, putting yourself above others, it leads to disorder. And on the one hand, we know that to be true in kind of the, the church-wide thing. When I, if, if I just keep pushing myself forward, then somebody else must be getting pushed down. Somebody else is going to be feeling hurt or broken by that. It creates a disorder amongst the community that should not be. But even more focused, it's double-mindedness in myself or in yourself to be someone who is claiming Christ, and yet we are living with the wisdom of this world. You can't claim Christ and boast in yourself. You become double-minded. We're going to really look at that a lot next week, so I'm going to save the rest of this talk for that. But it should not be that we would be a people who say one thing and do another. We should be single-minded. He says that, as part of that, it leads to every evil practice. And that's kind of a horrifying thought when you think about church and church ministry. What this means is that all of this results in what is called an ends justify the means. Right? All right, well, I'm going to build a great ministry. But to do so, I'm going to crush a bunch of people. But it'll be okay because God is glorified in the end by a really big and great ministry, right? I mean, that is how the world works. That is the understanding that the ends justify the means. 
You see it all over the place. You see it whenever somebody is willing to hurt others in order to build themselves in whatever they're trying to do up. And, and, and the trouble with the Christian who does it is they do it in the name of Jesus. They're like, well, Jesus is glorified by it. No, he's not. He's not. You can preach to 10,000 people, but if you got to 10,000 people with sin and evil and awfulness, guess what? He's not glorified by that at all. Christian, we should never think, never once ever think that the ends justify the means in the kingdom of God. People come to, 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 people come to Jesus by his power, not by the, the things we might do. He says this, right after this, that it's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. This kind of wisdom is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. At best, friends, at best it's earthly. <laughs> right? At best. At best it's just the natural order of things. At best it's just how things work. But it goes from there to being unspiritual, right? It's rooted in, in the opposite of what we should be as Christians. Spiritual people with the Spirit filling us and leading us to live. And at worst, what is it? It is demonic. Now, what does that mean? I mean, we don't talk about demons all that much. We did last week, of course, as we talked about the same thing. Why? Because our language, we're told in the first part of James chapter 3, is rooted in hell. When our tongues are tied to evil, it is rooted in hell. And here's the deal. Here's, he, he jumps to demonic. He's talking about the same thing. When we behave this way, it is not only that we are behaving like demons. It is actually that demons might be behaving us. That they might be leading us in what we're doing. At best, this kind of wisdom is earthly. But you see how quickly it goes downhill. On the other hand, we have godly wisdom. On the other hand, we have godly wisdom. Verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Verse 15, it is the wisdom from above. That's the first thing to just note here. Whereas the other, earth, the other wisdom at best is earthly, this wisdom is from above. It is coming down. In James, we read about things coming down. James 1, verse 17, what comes down from heaven above? Anybody remember? All of his good gifts. You think these two verses are tied together? James 1, 17, for every good and perfect thing that he gives comes down from above. And here where he says the wisdom comes down from above? Yeah, of course, they're tied. We should be trained to see that, to think that way. Wisdom comes down from above. It is a gift from the one who is above to those who are still below. Heavenly wisdom. And let me say this really quickly. Wisdom is a gift. It is meant like maturity to be sought, 
pursued and received from God who does not withhold good things from his people. You go to King Solomon. God says to King Solomon, Solomon, ask for anything you want. Solomon says, I want wisdom. God says, I'm going to give you wisdom. And in fact, because you asked for wisdom, I'm going to give you everything you didn't ask for too, wealth and riches and power. Trouble with King Solomon is that by the end of his life, he is the dumbest man that has ever lived. Why? Because he stops following the Lord. He stops doing it the way of the Lord. God gives him every reason, every gift from above, every good and perfect gift from above. Solomon uses that for a period of his life, but at some point he takes his eyes off God, and what happens? He falls. And he gets focused on women and money and power and reputation and all this other stuff. And it is the downfall of the nation of Israel. Now that's a warning to us. But look at the beginning of his life. Look at the beginning of his reign when he asks for wisdom and God gives it to him in the greatest measure that has ever been given. Church, I pray that we would be a people who seek wisdom, who seek the wisdom from God and not of this world. Then he gives us this list of what this looks like. And I, I want to share just one truth before I get to this list and we unpack this a little bit. As we mature in faith, these things will be easier and easier. Okay? I will say they should be easier and easier, but I, I, that's, that's the wrong word. They will be. As we mature in faith, these things will be easier and easier. That does not mean we will be perfect in them. That does not mean we will single-mindedly always be able to put the wisdom of this world down and just focus on the wisdom from above. We are still a sinful and broken people in need of grace, in need of Jesus. I'm actually convinced that if we could always live in the wisdom of God, it would cause us to lose sight of Jesus. We might begin to realize or think we don't need him as much as we once did. That, I think, is one of the reasons why even we who are mature, who are growing in our faith, maturing, studying, praying, reading, all the things we might be doing to grow, still have days, minutes, moments, maybe even a lot of them, where we stumble and fall, where, where we just we, we look back and we think, why did I do that? And yet I will stand by the statement that as we mature in our faith, these things will be easier. And I want you to be encouraged by that. I want you to be encouraged by that. So he gives us this list of what this will look like. First of all, wisdom from above is pure. It is pure. Now the language here harkens back to that word double-minded. This is actually the Greek opposite of the double-minded word. So rather than being double-minded, we are single-minded. Wisdom from above comes in, and it singularly focuses us on one thing. What is that one thing? On God. So he says the wisdom from above is pure. It is single-minded. And it goes straight back to the character of God. God is one, as we are to be one. 
This also goes back to James chapter 1. Religion that is pure and undefiled from God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. God gives us two things in that to talk about what it means to be single-minded. Keeping ourselves unpolluted from the world and serving the poorest of the poor are not two separate things on two different tracks. They are one. If you're not doing one, then you're, then you're not single-minded. We are meant to be a people who are pure, who are not being defiled by the world, while we are a people who are serving the orphans and the widows of this world, which is code in the Bible for the least of these. Because it just takes too much ink to write and the homeless and the persecuted and the unjustly punished and everybody else that you might list in the least of these. So the Bible uses orphans and widows to kind of sum that whole group up. Some of us, we focus our entire lives on staying separate from everything so that we don't defile ourselves with the world, but what it results in is that we never actually touch the world. We stay clear of every broken and dirty and hard thing so that we can focus on the one. Some of us, on the other hand, never think about what it means to be a pure person who is not living in sin while we're interacting with people who happen to be really broken. The Bible is meant to tell us, has meant to tell us that these things are one. And they need to be done as one. So he says, look, you need to be pure. You need to be pure. And you think about Jesus in this. You think about Jesus in this. Right? He is the one who is one. <laughs> he is never double-minded. He has never been double-minded. Everything he does is single-minded. When, when you think about his ministry on this earth, he's so incredibly focused on, on his mission, on what he's going for. And it carries him all the way through to the cross. It did not matter what the people around him were doing, either to themselves or to others. Jesus kept his focus, single-minded, one mission, one goal, the salvation of humanity. And along the way, you need to hear this, everything he did contributes to that because he is single-minded. So every miracle, every healing, every teaching, all this stuff pours in and lands on the cross of Christ as one single act, the salvation, the redemption of humanity for the glory of God. It all boils into that one thing because Jesus is what? Jesus is pure. He is one-minded, one-focused. And that's the vision to which we're called to as well, church. All right, then it says that, he's gonna, that, that the wisdom from above is peace-loving. Now, we've already talked a little bit about peace. He says the wisdom of this world is peace-loving. Their pursuit is peace. Now, this is tough, because what does peace look like? I mean, what does peace look like when there is an actual enemy standing nearby? What does peace look like in a church when someone sins and sins so big that it's got to be confronted? What does peace look like when two brothers or sisters in, in the church 
completely disagree on how something should happen. Some churches so focus on being peace-filled that they ignore the problems that are amongst them. The trouble with that is that in every church I've ever been that did that, you know what happened? It resulted in some really big wars down the road. To be peace-loving means to be proactive towards peace. It means dealing with the conflict as it comes up so that it doesn't stack up, it doesn't pile up, and become something huge. Any one of us who's married knows this. Any one of us who's divorced probably knows this even more. Because we can let problems pile and pile and pile in our marriages and suddenly there is nothing but separation that becomes necessary. Or we can be proactive about them. We can see them and talk about them, address them, and get the help outside that we might need so that we have actual peace. See, when, when we talk about a wisdom from above being peace-loving, it, it really loves peace, not the illusion of peace. Okay, then, after peace-loving, it talks about being gentle. In the NIV, the word here that's used is considerate. It kind of gives you a picture, a vision of what this is. To be gentle as we interact with one another. There's two things that are required for gentleness. Some of us have really been working through this and talking over this a lot lately. There's two things that require, are required for gentleness. The first is an awareness of your strength. The second is an awareness of their weakness. Okay? Just think about this. An awareness of your strength and an awareness of weakness. We love superhero movies, my wife and I. I think we've seen every single one of them eight times over. I mean, we love superhero movies. In a lot of superhero movies, there is a, a start to that story. You know, there's a moment where someone didn't have powers, now they do have powers. And sometimes, especially in those darker stories, that sometimes results in somebody getting hurt, right? Somebody doesn't know their strength, and suddenly they break their best friend in half. That's really dark, because <laughs> they don't know their strength. And so they hurt the people around them. On the other hand, Right? We need to know people's weakness. Right? I need to know if I'm going to talk with one of you about struggle and sin and problems in your life, I need to know what the struggles are so I know how to come in and, and be gentle with it. See, gentleness is not weakness. So a lot of times we think about it that way. But we've been working really hard, um, some of us, especially men, talking about how gentleness is actually the restraint of strength. You can't be gentle if you're not strong. You can be weak if you're not strong, but you can't be gentle if you're not strong because you've got to hold back, right? So he says, look, you need to be gentle or in the NIV, considerate. You think through what other people are thinking and doing and what's going on with them. Have you ever been in, in a meeting and there was a, a, a discussion or the, a fight got, got kind of heated. And then you realize only afterwards that it's because somebody was going through something. I mean, you, they didn't have a problem with you. But you got in this big argument, this big fight, because they've got a problem with seven other things. 
and, and you just happen to come down a little bit too hard on it. I mean, I've been there. We need to be considerate. We need to be gentle. Wisdom from above is gentle. It is considerate. All right, the next one. Compliant. Now, that's not the word in the ESV. That's uh, the word in the CEV, or CSB, rather. In the ESV, it says, open to reason. Another way to think about this is submissive and trusting. Okay? So being open to reason. To recognize the truth when you hear it. See, wisdom recognizes the truth when it hears it. Wisdom recognizes the truth when they hear it. And they hear it, and guess what the wise person does? They obey it. They obey it. You look at Jesus, John 14, 31, he says this, But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Wise people hear the Lord. They recognize the Lord's voice. They feel the urging of the Holy Spirit as the Spirit leads us to speak or to do, to pray. Wise people recognize the voice of Jesus in Scripture and, and think, I want to honor him. I want to do what he said to do. Are we quick to do as God has called us? Do we recognize the voice of God? Do we see and hear and know Jesus' words in Scripture? Do we know the Spirit's leading? And do we do what we've been told? See, those who are wise from above, and, and these are dirty words in our culture, are submissive and compliant to the Lord. Right, those words are not words our culture likes using. Just read Ephesians 6 to somebody who's wise in the ways of the world as it talks about wives submitting to their husbands. Man, nothing will start a fight faster. We live in a culture that hates the idea of compliance, submission, and obedience. But the wise person from above recognizes when they hear God and they listen and they obey. We need to be people who do that if we're going to be wise. Next up is full of mercy. Full of mercy. Wise in the kingdom. Those who are wise from above are rich, are full of mercy. What does it mean to be full of mercy? It means to be quick to forgive. Quick to forgive. And quick to restore, if at all possible. Now, we talk a lot about forgiveness. We are wronged. We have been wronged in serious ways by some people in our lives. And there's always that question, all right, if I forgive them, do I need to, you know, fully restore them again? You know, a, a spouse who cheats or a spouse even worse, I think, who abuses, right? Do you, do you forgive and restore them? You move right back? No, right? There are times for that. But there are times when trust is broken, we forgive, we restore as we can, but we're also meant to protect ourselves. We're also meant to, to live the way we need to live. 
To be full of mercy is to be quick to forgive and quick to restore if possible. It means lifting up those who do not deserve it. I want you to just listen to that phrase again. Lifting up those who do not deserve it. And then think about Jesus and think about you. Jesus is full of mercy. Jesus has lifted up those of us who have come to him, not because we deserve it, but because he has wanted to. How many of us in our lives have gotten the chance to lift up somebody who didn't deserve it and see the power that happens in their lives because of it? Somebody who hurt us, somebody who hurt other people, and we lift them up, we restore them, right? Somebody who disappointed us. Somebody we asked something of and they didn't do it. They failed miserably or ignored it completely and it really affected us. It really hurt us. What are we meant to do? Are we meant to to keep kind of reminding them of that or are we meant to be full of mercy and lift up those who don't deserve it? Jesus Man, Jesus did this. You look at it over and over again, especially the end of his life and, and, and the, the resurrection. Think about Peter, right, who denied Jesus three times very deliberately. Even after Jesus had said he would do it, he denied that he would do it. He got in an argument about that. Jesus, of course, was right because he always is. And what does Jesus do after he's resurrected? He goes to Peter and he says, Peter, dude, you messed up. Go away. No. He goes to Peter, and because Peter denied him three times, Jesus comes to him, and he restores him three times. Perfect restoration. Perfect mercy. You look at Thomas at the end, too, right? Thomas is sitting there, and he's like, you know what? I can't believe that he's alive. There's no way I can do that. I would have to see and touch him. Jesus shows up and says, Thomas, dude, you didn't believe. Go away. Does he? No, he says, Thomas, dude, come here. He says, Thomas, man, come here. Come and see, look and touch. Because he is full of mercy. He is so full of mercy that there is nothing these people did to him that didn't cause him to restore him. On the cross, he's being killed and he says what? Father, forgive them for he knows they know not what they do. Here's a really haunting thought. Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. When Jesus speaks, what happens? It happens. I believe, I think you should too, that every single one of those men who participated in the crucifixion of Jesus is in heaven right now. He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. When Jesus forgives our sins, it is forever. And they may not have known it then, but they were going to know it someday. That God was going to draw them to himself to see how full of mercy he really is. Can you imagine that testimony? Yeah, I'm the one who hit the nails through Jesus' hands. Three years later, I don't know, somebody's preaching and they're like, I'm going to follow that because he would lead them to himself. I I don't know. I don't know if that's absolutely true, but I think it is. Because when Jesus speaks, powerful things happen, okay? He's full of mercy. We, if we're wise in the world, are going to be full of mercy too. In fact, what that looks like, I think, is that people in the world are going to think we're really foolish. Why? 
Because the world is not full of mercy. The world says, look, give people what they deserve and nothing more. Are we going to be full of mercy, church? All right, lastly, he lands in this idea of good fruits. He says, full of mercy and good fruits, right? Good stuff. And he goes on to say, impartial and sincere. Okay, impartial and sincere. Now, what does this mean? The interesting thing is these two words actually have the same meaning. This is not the same word when he's talking about impartial back when he talks about the sin of partiality that, that Pastor Scott addressed just a few weeks ago. To be impartial in this sense and to be sincere are very much tied the same. It is, again, what we see in the next chapter in James chapter 4 when he says double-minded. It is to be single-minded again. The first good fruits of wisdom is that single-mindedness and to be sincere. So wisdom starts in single-mindedness, but it also ends in single-mindedness. Church, what do we do with this? Let me ask the questions again. Are you wise? Are you wise in the Lord? Are you wise in wisdom from above? Here's what we need to do. The first thing I think every one of us needs to do is examine our lives. We need to examine the wisdom and the lives that we live out of that wisdom. Is it godly or is it of this earth? Let's examine our lives. Then, I think we need to confess. I'm just going to be honest. If you look at your life, if you truly examine your life, you are going to have something to confess. None of us are perfect. None of us are living this out perfectly. If you examine your life, say, Lord, show me where I am wise in the world versus wise um, from above. Show me how my, li- how my life is being lived out of the wrong kind of wisdom. I'm going to make the guess that every one of us will have something to confess. That as we look at our motives, we look at how we do things, we look at what we do, we look at how we speak, act, all these things, something will rise to the surface. We would confess before the Lord that we fall short, that we are in sin. The beautiful thing, we say this all the time, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, he will forgive us. He's full of mercy. It's what he does. So come before him and confess. And then, church, I want to invite us to let the wisdom of God fuel our worship. Let the wisdom of God fuel our worship. Because it's who he is. It's who he's calling us to be. We worship God, church. We worship God for giving us something different, something different than this world. As you look through this list, I want to just point one more thing out to you because I think this is amazing and it actually draws me absolutely in worship myself as I was thinking about this and praying about it and, and, and preparing this message is that every single thing that he says is wisdom from above is the exact opposite of every single thing he says is wisdom from, from, from below. There's a one-to-one in every one of these words. Right, to be wise in the world is to be double-minded. It's to say one thing and do another, because why not? To be wise in the kingdom and wise from above is to be single-minded, right? I mean, you look through these lists, and as you look at them, you see that what he's saying is that, hey, you're supposed to be different. 
I praise God, really do, in every, in every way that he has called me and allowed me to be, even in my own limited way and broken way and whatever else, wise to the things from above rather than to continue to be wise to the things of this earth. That he called me to live a different life. I'm so thankful for that. I don't want to live for the world. I don't want to live the way the world lives. I hope you don't want to live the way the world, world lives. I hope you're thankful that he too has called you to that and that that might be something that would motivate you from your heart to live differently. Because we don't have to live in that wisdom. The wisdom we grew up in, the wisdom we see all over the place, the wisdom of this world, because we have been given a different wisdom. And that wisdom, I just want to say this again, should be drawing us to worship the Lord, to delight in him and, and who he is and what he's done and what he's doing in us even right now. And hear this, and what he will do and continue to do in the lost people of this community as they hear about him, as they're drawn to him and they are saved by the grace of the gospel. Did you know our community doesn't need to continue being what it has been? I hear from a lot of us, a lot of you. Man, our community's gotten dark. Wahana has changed. It's gotten dark. Los Animas, dark. Right, man, there's crime. There's things happening we didn't used to see happening all the time. Here's the, here's the reality. Did you know those things don't need to continue happening? Because the power of God, as he changes the wisdom of those who come to him and are saved, results in transformation. That transformation can and will change the community that it's in. Believe it. And worship him for what he's going to do. Amen? Let me close with this one last verse. If you want to know more this week, if you want, you're thinking about this, you're praying about it, you're thinking, man, this is really hitting me. Romans chapter 12 is where you need to spend the next week of your, of your learning, of your reading, your discipleship, your, your devotions. Let me read Romans chapter 2. It says, do not be conformed to this world. Sorry, this is Romans 12 too, if I said that wrong. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's just a taste of Romans chapter 12, which is really all about all of this. And so I want to invite you to study that, be in it this week. Let that scripture, let those scriptures meld in your heart. Let them conform your mind to the gospel, to the wisdom from above. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your wisdom. We thank you so much for the, the good gifts that you give, Lord, wisdom and life and salvation. I pray, God, that we would be a people who would be wise to the things from above, that, Lord, we would work to cast off of us, to cast out of us, to send away from us the wisdom that is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic, Lord, that we would put that stuff down in exchange for the goodness of your wisdom in our lives. God, I pray you would lead us. I pray you would love us. I pray, God, that you would save us, especially anyone in this room right now who does not know you yet. I pray that your spirit would be leading them to see your goodness and your glory and that they would be irresistibly drawn to who you are, that they would give their lives to you. Help us all, Lord, to give our lives to you in every measure and in every way, Lord, as we, as we examine and we see areas that, that we struggle in. I pray, God, that we would 
by your power be able to, to give those things to you, Lord, to take away from us, Lord, and to make us more and more conformed in the image of your Son, the image that we have of perfect wisdom. One who was unlike Solomon, one who was wise, but never gave up that wisdom for anything else. I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be fueled for our worship in the rest of our time today into communion, as well as our last song, God, and, and even moving forward, that we as a church would be fueled by, by what you've done, who you are, and what you're calling us to. God, we thank you and we praise you and we give you the glory. Amen.